we have been going along in the Gospel of John. We are now after the betrayal of Judas. He has left. We are after the new commandment of Jesus saying to his disciples for the first time, having the 11 disciples that are true Christians saying there's only one way that anyone in this world is going to know that you are my true disciples, and that is your love for each other. Notice he does not attach it to the greatest commandment, love of God. He doesn't even attach it to the second one, love of neighbor. He attaches it and gives a brand new commandment that says, this will signify and delineate the difference between Christian and non-Christian, between true disciple and false disciple. You will love one another. We spoke at length about that last week and the nature of why we have exchanged out the concept of what service love is to one another for uh, all these ways that our culture is trying to define love for us, when in reality, Scripture does a wonderful job at defining it for us. It is not an affinity or a friendship. It is a service, action-based, benefiting of other, even at my own expense. We will seek to meet one another's needs. We will seek to serve one another for the glory of Christ. Or as the book of Romans puts it, if you're going to outdo one another in anything, if you're going to have a competition about anything, this is my paraphrase, outdo one another in showing honor to each other. Have a competition to see who can serve each other the most. You need help on this, you need help on that, you need support on this, you need encouragement and patience in the faith, guess what? I can help you with that. You can help me with this. This kind of back and forth, Romans will actually say, if you're going to outdo one another in one thing, at least do it in showing honor to one another, in loving one another. Don't owe one anything except love to one another. And therein is a description of Christian to Christian relationship at the heart of the gospel. Because it's not just about Phyllis's salvation. It's not just about Olivia's salvation. It's not just about Tim's salvation. It is about the gathering of the believers that God has living at the time and the space in which you live, and you hold one another to it because we can't do it alone. A sure sign that you think you can do it alone is that you never confess your sins or ask advice from another Christian. And Jesus is expressing, he says, at the very heart of this love for one another, you must need one another. And if we are to see ourselves as sufficient in ourselves, John is going to just, what did I say? Sometimes the scriptures just pick you up, slap you around a bit, and set you back down. And John does this with this. He will actually do this with the very first person who, after hearing the command to love one another, Peter just goes, yeah, um, I got it. I can follow you. I don't even need anyone to encourage me. I got it. Anyone who's been a young Christian knows this fervor, this, this desire, even if everyone else abandons you, I will stay faithful. I have known many people, myself included, that annoying guy in the mirror, who have at one point or another said in their lives that other people just let you down. It's just, it's all you. You can follow the Lord and all will be well. How far does that get you? Well, it might get you a little bit further. It's kind of like the way of foolishness. 
If you think you can do something when you actually do not have the strength of it and you need other people to do it, eventually, well, to mix the metaphors, eventually in your mountain climbing, you're going to run out of carabiners and no way to go higher. There's nothing you can actually do on your own. There is a team effort in this. It's something where we actually need one another. We need to confess our sins to one another. We need to pray for one another. We need to hold one another because guess what? I may have a good day and you may have a good day, but what's coming? A day where we both have horrible ones and somehow we need to pull each other up. Because here's the thing. Complaints coming out of your mouth sound legitimate until you hear them repeated back to you. So, same for encouragements. Rick, let's imagine you and I both have a terrible day. I'm going to put you on the spot. Both have a terrible day. What, what's something you would say on a bad day? What, what's some like, I've lost my patience, I, I've lost all pursuit of endurance, forget all of the virtues of life, I'm going to give in to my viciousness. What would you say? Put you on the spot. Great. Familiar with it. Not great. Let me alter that a little bit. It'll be easy to come up with an example then. Yep. Me too. Sometimes, let me tell you how bad it gets with me sometimes. I'll lash out like something like that. It's not often, but it does happen. And I will feel a shame that makes me not want to pray about it. You ever felt that one? That one is deeply troubling. Really bad habit. And it's something that sits really close to me. And so it's one of the reasons I've surrounded myself with different men I can go to and go, hi, something malfunctioned. This time, the wrath of man will bring about the righteousness of God. Yeah. Never does. It's that, it's that same old adage, both foolishness and evil promise something it cannot deliver. Right? So when we get in our minds that we can convince ourselves that the Christian life can be lived by me, by myself, and accomplish that which is both foolish and evil to think, we are actually sticking ourselves just in the confidence on the wrong path. Even if you can keep yourself going for a few hours, like Peter here in today's passage, even if everyone else abandons you, all will be well, I will never deny you, and Jesus turns to him and goes, you just stepped on the wrong path. You just found Here's the word from our theology this morning. Sufficiency in yourself. You are now depending on yourself. And you're going to learn where that path leads because I tell you there's a little chicken in town that will glorify God more than you this evening. 
That's a tremendously humbling passage. And I want you to read it with me. Stand in honor of God and his word as we partake in that. We are actually going a little bit further than the end of chapter 13. We're going to go to the end of verse 3 in chapter 14 uh, because there we see the antithesis. So we're going to see the parallels here. Let's read it. Uh, John 13, 36 through 14, 3. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him and said, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you indeed lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled, he turns to the rest of them. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, uh, no, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that we may be able to interact with it in our own language, that it may speak to our hearts and our minds the very way that we think and consider. We know that it has not always been that case for Christians throughout history, and so we give you our thanks for it now. We are able to hold a personal copy of it in our own heart language. We're grateful for this. Father, this passage shows us the limits of who we are and that, that tendency we have to overestimate our own resolve. We pray, Father, that you work in us humility of mind, that we do not have to learn this firsthand, but instead learn it secondhand uh, by your apostle Peter, who is here given to us an example of what not to do. We thank you, Father, for the example. We thank you for the teaching of your word. We pray it change the heart of the hearer in your son's name. Amen. You can be seated. Right. Peter was not lying. He was not trying to oversell himself. He truly believed what he was saying. It is evident by every single time Peter shows up in the text, he is, he is overemphasizing something or he is establishing something or he is, he is very confident in how things ought to work. Jesus tells him he's going to go up to Jerusalem, he's going to be betrayed and all these things. And Peter steps up and says, Lord, say it ain't so. That's my translation from where I came from. How could it possibly be that you would go up and do that? You're supposed to be victorious. Don't you know the prophecies? You're supposed to have victory. There should be something higher. Peter also, in his, in his attempts to gain this kind of observation about these things, the Spirit even gave him the, the privilege of being the first one to fully identify who Christ was. That's incredible. But as the Proverbs say, take heed while you are up, lest you fall. To whom much is given, much is expected. Many gifts and much grace was given to Peter. And one of the things that came back to him constantly was this idea that maybe he could actually be sufficient for himself. When Jesus says to them, 
that he is going away. And that they cannot follow. Peter, as, as I've always heard him described as the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth, desires to stand up and ask a question. Because Peter had just motioned to John. He's like, John, ask him who he's talking about. Who's going to betray him? So I'm going to pummel him. That, that's what I see. That's what I see in the background. Not only might it be me, but whoever it is, I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen. We know from later on in the narrative, he's already packing a sword. Right? Who is it? Find out from him. Find out. And the, the remarkable thing is, even on the look for it, they miss the fact that Jesus just said about Judas Iscariot what was going on, and he speaks to Satan in front of them, and they have no idea what's going on. But they think they have a beat on it all. And sure, there's a nervousness that any one of us it could be, but there's also that subtext of whoever it is, we're going to trounce him. He's not even in the room anymore. Peter? And Peter, high on this, it's not me, there's no way it could be me, even if everyone else denies you, even if everyone else betrays you. I want to go where you're going. What, what an interesting way to quote this, because the story is told a little bit differently in the other Gospels, and John just focuses right in on the problem, because it illustrates one of the main problems of people's lack of grasp of the Gospel. They think it's about them. Because that's typically how it's sold. Remember, Johnson's whole purpose is that the reader who is not a Christian at the beginning of the Gospel of John will be a Christian by the end of the Gospel of John. He tells you straight out in chapter 20. He says, I want to convert you. What are the... What are the Stones that will trip us up. What are the things that will distract us from this? What are the things that will tell us that the gospel isn't enough, that we actually don't even need it perhaps because maybe we have confidence in ourselves enough and in this culture of bootstraps that we think are so strong to pull ourselves up by, we tend to think this way. That the gospel is really about us. It's about giving me hope that I might enjoy my life or it's about giving me a nice home to go when I die or something like this rather than what the gospel is truly about, and that is the glory of God. It is about him conducting his ways in a world that belongs to him, and we have the benefit of being along for that and being the object of his love as his dear children. Peter loses sight of this for a moment. And I'm not, I'm not really... You know, laying it on Peter, I'd done the same thing. Because I wouldn't have been able to see what was going on. Jesus' mind is already at the cross, not, not 18 hours away. Peter has no idea that tomorrow is unique. He's just at dinner. He's just at dinner. They think it's a normal night. Why did Judas Iscariot go away? Do what you need to do, do it quickly. And Judas is going away to betray Jesus, but in all their minds, he's like, I guess he's depositing money at the bank. It's just a normal Thursday night. Where are you going, Jesus? You're going to go to Jerusalem? I know you told me about that about a year ago, and I told you no, and you corrected me. I remember that. I applied it. Okay, great. Wherever you go, I'm going to go with you. 
with this sword <laughs> to make sure nobody kills you. You can see it come out when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He thinks it's a normal night where people are trying to come up and take advantage and or arrest Jesus. And he's like, I got a sword. I'm going to protect him. And here the very night before, before they even leave out, or as they're leaving out, excuse me, because they left the room in, in verse 30, as they're basically leaving the house, this discussion is taking place. And, and Peter's just kind of walking next to Jesus and going, what? so you say you're going somewhere that we can't follow. Why not? Why not? We've been following you for four years. We've been following you all this time. Where are you going this late Thursday night? And Jesus, ever the hyperbolic, obfuscating teacher that he is, says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterward. Now, did Jesus answer the question? A little bit. <laughs> but then he gave him like eight more questions. Because then what goes through your mind if you're the one asking this question? Where are you going? Oh, I'm going to go someplace you can't go yet. You will later. Okay, why not now? Why later? Does it have to do with ability? Do I need to do something first? Is this like a quest? What a, like, think about Peter's own mindset. It's an average Thursday night. They just had Passover. They do it every year. It's not that big of a deal. It's, it's an important time, but it's just really Thursday night. And they're walking along the path again. Jesus is going, where this path leads, you can't go. And he's like, where is it? Where does it go? Jesus is like, don't worry about it. You can't follow me now. You do not have the ability to walk this path tonight. Someday you will. Peter said to him, why can't I? I have held nothing back in following you. I would lay down my own life for you. I laid down my fishing boat. I laid down my claim to all these things. I've been following you for years. I followed you everywhere. You think it's danger? I got a sword. You think it's misunderstanding? I identified who you are. You think it's that I'm going to lose sight of things? I saw you in the Mount of Transfiguration with James and John. I'm in your inner circle. I'm your friend. And the, the heart of the matter is, if any person had what it took to be confident in themselves and to follow Christ without the need of one another and without the leadership of Christ, Peter is exactly right. He would have the best claim at following Jesus due to his proximity to him. He has already seen him in all his glory. Do you know that? So much so that he knew he couldn't even look at his face he and James and John in the Mount of Transfiguration, transfixed to the ground instead, begged that they could build tabernacles, not just for Jesus, but because Moses and Elijah were so overwhelming, let's build three of them, just to contain this and hold it here. And what was Jesus' response? Not only can you not do that, you're not allowed to tell anybody about this. This will be our secret for a few years. Not until after 
I rise from the dead. Can you imagine how many things are swirling around Peter's minds with this? I can't tell anyone about this. I know who he is. I'm going to settle on this. And then everyone else, I'm ready to lose my life for this. Listen to that confidence. And Jesus challenges his claim. Will you indeed lay your life down for me? Really? You think today you have what it takes to do that? Really? You don't even have the Spirit of God yet. Do you really think you have what it takes in your natural state to follow me before your sins are fully acquitted before resurrection is accomplished, before the Spirit of God is sent, and you preach on the day of Pentecost. You think before that you have what it takes. You're going to lay your life down for me. How ironic, given what the next day is going to bring. I have to lay down my life for you before you can even think about the reality of you laying your life down for me. See, Peter is going into this going, I will risk my life, I will even take my life, whatever it takes, my life is count for nothing, I will stand up against the entire temple's guard with a single sword. And what is Jesus' answer to him here? Will you do that? Really? That's what you think you're going to do? Listen to me. And wouldn't you know that Jesus saves one of his truly, truly remarks for this moment? Did you ever catch that? It's not just a, oh, by the way, Peter, uh, chicken, can make some noise after you and not going to be good. No, Jesus actually saves one of the most solemn statements for this, which means this is not showing off. This is showing the heart of self-sufficiency being antithetical to the gospel. You think you have what it takes? You don't. And you're about to learn it in one of the most shameful ways. And here you sit, sword in hand, puffing your chest up, ironically like a cocky rooster, thinking you've got it all. Will you indeed lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Now, I'm not going to give away the story, but when Jesus speaks, he kind of does. That comes true. And that self-confidence that started out oh so strong that evening on Thursday turned into bitter weeping by the end of Friday. Turned into him speaking to Jesus not even a week later confessing his love for him, and yet, man, do we learn something about Peter in that, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Because every single time Jesus asks him, do you agape me? He responds, I like you as a friend. He is humbled to the point of no confidence in himself because he realizes his own lack. And still Jesus tells him to feed his sheep. It's a book I read once that I love the title of. I don't love all the arguments in the book, but it's a wonderful title. And it's written for pastors by pastors. It's called Leading with a Limp. 
Never ever get an attitude, and parents, I'll say the same to you, or grandparents, never get an idea that you're trying to turn people into you. You barely like you. Other people barely like you. Your goal is to point them to Christ. Your goal is to point them to Christ, not only so that they will come to grips with their need of a Savior, but here's the thing. If you're a Christian, you're going to like them a little bit more that way too. So what if they reject it? What if they do? It doesn't change your job. It doesn't change your role. But boy, howdy, it will change your attitude. Do what is right and you leave the results to the Lord. Do what is good. And do not put confidence in the flesh. No. Instead, we are the true circumcision who worship God and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in us at all. No matter if several of us join together and create a church and then we put confidence in the church. Don't do that either. What if we all join together and create a nationwide church that's ruled by king and state? Will that ensure that we have what it takes to follow Christ altogether? No. We cannot solve this on the earth side of things. We cannot solve it on the human side of things. We do not have confidence in ourselves. Why? Because our confidence should not be on us. It shouldn't even be in the gathered assembly. Jesus will, the way that John lays this out, make very clear where our confidence rests in the next three verses. Watch this. Jesus interacts with them. He's talking to Peter about this. Now, you got to understand, the other ten disciples that are standing there are not disagreeing with Peter. They're all hoping that they're not the one to betray him. They're all thinking that, I will follow him. You know why? Because they're still with him. We will follow him. Where is he going? We don't know where he's going, but why, why can't we follow him now? It's confusing. And so right after he looks at Peter and says, for the best of the disciples, if you will, at least to their mind, you think you have what it takes to lay down your life for me? No. Truly, truly, I say to you, before this night is over, you will deny me three times before the rooster even crows in the morning. And then he turns to all 11 of them and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Before you freak out, don't let your hearts be troubled. You have believed in God your whole lives. You have gone to synagogue. You have worshipped him. You have followed the scriptures. You have sought them for salvation. Remember, New Testament is not written at this time. They are Jewish believers. These are Old Testament saints he's speaking to. No spirit of God given to them. That doesn't happen until Acts. Here he is speaking to them and says, you have believed in God all of these years. That confidence you had in God, in heaven, separate from you, in some way that you don't really apply it here in the specific manner, that same trust, that same confidence that you have in him, put it in me. Now, I cannot tell you the amount of people that I've heard that claim that Jesus never claimed to be God. Explain verse 1 to me, please. Because what he is saying is that confidence that's at the center of the gospel and has been announced since Genesis, that 
Abraham believed God and it, account, it accounted to him as righteousness. That gospel that has been preached to the ears of people for millennia at the coming of Jesus, Jesus now says all of that confidence, all of that belief, everything that you had in this almost uh, ethereal sense, establish it in me. Place your confidence in me. What human can say that? What prophet could say that? What good person could possibly say such a thing? No. You have believed in God. Place your confidence also in me. Don't place it in yourself. Don't place it in each other. Because all of you are going to abandon me this evening. This is what we learn from the pages of it. They all left him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the best one of them was Peter, who stuck around long enough to try to defend him. And then Jesus told him not to. And then he left. And then he went down and denied who he was. Jesus establishes the place of confidence, and it is not in the self, and it is not in the assembly, it is not in the church. As much as I love church history, it is not in the history of the church either. It is in Christ only. You have your bulletin? Turn to the back page. We have it written there, if you didn't ever notice. In Latin, the five solas of the Reformation. In English, the five alones. Look at number four. Christ only. Christ alone. Why is that there? Because it is the defining characteristic of the gospel to place confidence in him. That's why number two is there. Faith. Confidence. Reliance. It is something so central to the gospel that to remove it for a moment loses full sight of all of its benefits. Here Jesus is expressing the same thing. You believed in God, believe also in me. Look at this, look at the way he describes this. You want to talk about enigmatic terms that just bring up more questions than they answer. In my father's house are many dwelling places, many rooms. <laughs> like, wait, wait, what? What are you talking about? We weren't asking about dwelling places. We were talking about places you're going. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, or excuse me, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In other words, I am going to prepare a place where all of my people will live for all of eternity. Much as I love old hymns, the one that talks about having mansions and things like that. That's not a good translation of this. It's about a place in which to live, an abode. It's a very broad and general term. Where is God's home going to be? Not now, in the eschaton, at the end of the ages. Here. Right now, heaven is defined as the place where God lives. Where God is, that's heaven. That is not the earth. If you have not looked around much, that ain't the earth. Not yet. A lot of stuff has to happen first. One day, God's home will be here on the new earth. So overwhelming the transformation that it is not just the heaven and the new earth, it is the new heavens and the new earth. 
a place that Peter, towards the end of his life, in 2 Peter chapter 3, wrote and said, we are waiting for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness lives. I don't know if you've paid attention to the news recently. This ain't that place yet. This is the place where evil lives. And there are sparks of heaven throughout it. The place where God and man cross over. He was standing in front of them. The place where God lives. Where God and humanity have perfect concert in the person of Jesus Christ. This is why the spirit indwells the church. God living with his people. The fulfillment of the prophecy of Emmanuel continued past the resurrection and the ascension of Christ is found in the spirit of God indwelling his church. He will not leave us even to the end of this age. And we are still in this age. And as we live in this age, it is endemic to us to be thankful and to be paying attention to who he is and what he is doing. It is why we are here. But someday, God will make his full home with us. And it will most likely be after you have died. Because it has been that way for 50 generations of Christians. Someone asked me once, do I think Jesus is coming back like in the next decade or so? I said, I usually, in order for me to actually maintain a healthy way to think about my responsibilities, I have to anticipate that Jesus' return is another thousand years away. So that I will pass this down. Many have been the times in the church where we fail to pass down gospels because we think we're the end of it. That's a terrible view of history, that we're the culmination of it. We're not. I promise you, you think you're smarter than people in history, I got some books for you to read. I got some books written by medieval scholastics that will make you rethink your concept of dark ages. I got some books, some writings about people that will teach us who we truly are. Wisdom from ages gone by. These things are ours and we hand them down and hand them down. If we think we're the last generation, how much handing down are we going to be doing? Not much. Yet that is our responsibility. And it's exactly how Jesus is saying this. Don't worry about all that. Peter, you can't follow me. And then he turns to them all. Don't let your hearts be troubled. If I'm not here, it means I'm getting all that ready for you. You say, what does that mean? I don't know. Nobody does. Anyone who says they do is lying to you. They have no idea. Jesus is specifically using very broad terminology. He doesn't even call them houses. He doesn't really call them rooms. It's a word we don't have in English, which is why the translations are so different. It's places in which people live. Abodes. Living spaces. They say, are there limits to it? Are there designs to it? I don't know. Neither do you. Nobody does. It's one of those wonderful things about how Jesus speaks. He's not giving you all the answers, especially for things at the end. Anyone ever read the book of Revelation? Did, was the first thing you thanked God to when you got to chapter 22 the amount of clarification that you have? 
We forget the book of Revelation is the only book that Jesus essentially gave. He's the one. It's called the Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's written by John. Oh, wait, there's some crossover here. Strange. It's almost like all of this was understood by John, and he includes the obfuscation and then just leaves it and says, okay, theologians, argue about that. Try to figure out all that stuff. Good luck. By the way, you can't. I've been down that path way too many times. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He's just calling them out on this. He says, I've told you this. You just need to believe it. They're like, well, maybe we can uh, verify. Nope. Okay, well, uh, how much time do we have? None of your business. Okay, well, so what are the signs of? Don't worry about it. It, it's, It's a remarkable way that Jesus speaks about these things. And John includes in. He's... And here's the great thing. One of the greatest discourses that Jesus ever gave on these topics was the Olivet Discourse, which John was present for, and he completely leaves out of his gospel. It's three chapters long in the book of Matthew. And it gives all sorts of details about the nature of the world and the end of it and all these things. John doesn't speak one word of it because it's not the point that John's giving this. He's trying to save you. He is trying to appeal to you what things will hold you back from the gospel. Here's one massive one. You think you're enough. But you don't even know what the end looks like. It's like when God showed up to Job. Remember how he starts that off in chapter 38? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Stand up like a man. I will address you and you're going to answer me. Let me ask you a question. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You who have understanding and wisdom, who question the Almighty, what do you know? And he takes them through all of nature. Do you even know how the jackal gives birth? Do you know where the hawk flies and makes its roost? Do you know the way of this, the way of light? Do you know the way of Leviathan, of Behemoth? Do you know of anything? Actually, do you know anything at all? And you question my ways? I made all of those things. Jesus does the same thing with sparrows. It's almost like the same God speaking to the same lunkheads. He says, You're anxious about your life, what you will put on, what you will wear, where you will go. Have you looked at a bird? They don't spin. They don't toil. They don't freak out. But the Lord provides their food. Is it a lot of work? Oh, yeah. You ever seen a bird build a nest? Tons of work. They're not lazy expecting the food to drop into their beaks. They do the work and the food is there. God says, that's how I made the world to work. Why are you wasting your time with anxiety? Don't do that. The world works in a very predictable manner. You work, you eat. Pretty simple. Well, I don't have a place to live. You work, you build it. Pretty simple. Or you buy it or you get a mortgage. You know how it goes. He says, it's not even living things that get this. Look at a flower. Solomon, in pursuing beauty and tapestry to a level none other in his generation, couldn't even get to the level of a daisy, which you guys harvest and throw away. Beauty, provision, 
design, salvation, you can't accomplish, but God gives in spades. This is what John is saying here. You could never travel to heaven. But the path to heaven is simple to define. Christ. He says, I'm going to go there. You can't come now. You will later. You say, oh, well, I have, uh, well, I have huge abilities later. No, you'll just die. And he'll take care of you. As Peter wrote at the end of his life in 1 Peter, he says, it's in chapter 5 if you're confused about it. He says, as far as for our responsibility, let us do good and entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Let us do what is right. Let us carry on with full confidence in who he is and entrust our souls to him. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. He said, well, what if the path looks bizarre, looks unfun, or it looks difficult? Welcome to the way of the cross. In one of the few times that I was able to encourage somebody, <clears throat> I had a pastor friend of mine call me up. And he says, I, I'm, having, I'm having a real rough go of it right now. I need to, I need to settle out how this and this. He says, I'm, it's not going the way I anticipated And he says, the, the difficulties of the path that I am on are so complicated that I don't know if I can continue on anymore. He says, what would you say to someone who said that to you? Because I'm saying that to you. I said, well, one, I'm sorry. And that's not a fun place to be. But you joined the way of the cross. What did you expect? If everything's going easy, is that a good sign? I don't know. Certainly doesn't seem so. On the other side, if everything's difficult, does that mean you did something wrong? Or does it mean take stock, analyze yourself? Repent of what needs to be repented of and carry on. Cross ain't going to carry itself. The one who endures to the end is saved. The one who stops and lays down the cross isn't. And I'm not saying you have to stick with this or that. But man, what you're telling me is a difficult step along the right path. The last thing I'm going to tell you to do is move the path. I'm going to tell you is take a step again. I'll help you. Today's a bad day. Tomorrow might be worse. The path is worth it. The one who endures to the end will be saved. What does Jesus say at the end here? He said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, notice he doesn't say, you will be able to find it because it'll be in your heart. No. If I go and prepare a place for you, 
I will come and I will take you again. I will take you there. Notice, this is a great thing. If you're ever just stuck in the scriptures and you're wondering what it means, just follow the verbs. Who's doing what? Who is doing the action here? Because it ain't Peter and James and John and Nathaniel and all the other ones. No, it is Christ. Entrust your souls to a faithful creator, not to the whims of your hand, because I promise you this. I have had days, and so have you, where we have counted the cost and we have not considered walking with Christ worth it anymore. And if you haven't had those days, they are coming. It is why there is more encouragements to endure than there are of anything else in Scripture. Because some days, it just by measure of that day, will not feel worth it. Wisdom rarely does. But move that clock forward. What is the outcome of these paths? And this is where Jesus gives it to us. Wherever that is, whatever it looks like, I'm not going to tell you, but I will tell you this. When I'm done, I will come and take you there. And I can't say anything else that would be more encouraging than that. I think a lot of people try to pull their encouragement by all their theories about what exactly it will look like, what time it will look like, what this and that. And man, they got them charts. If Christ made it and Christ is taking me there, I don't need to know anything else. Come what may. Let's pray. Our Father, we are grateful for your word. We're thankful that it speaks deeply to the hearts of your people as you form them and fashion them after your will. We thank you that you have done that with us this morning. We pray that you continue to do that with us as we respond in song and in prayer in allegiance to you alone. Father, we pray that you delight our hearts with the stuff of heaven here in the midst of the winds of the earth. May you ground us so that we are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but instead establish our feet not on our own footing, but, Father, on the gospel of peace itself, that we do not lose our footing, that we do not stray from that path, but instead endure to the end. Give us encouragement, we pray in your Son's name. Amen.